0: what's happening everybody welcome back to the podcast today's special guest is andrew ecker and for people that don't know i am actually part cherokee and you know i don't really talk about it too much but uh, my next guest is actually an apache and i've always been very fascinated with mental health from a native american uh, perspective just because for people that don't know there is a bit of a crisis with substance abuse but Um, Talking to Andrew actually made me feel a little bit more at ease and you'll see why as you get through the video. But Andrew comes from a very tragic background with his parents, which we'll get into in the video. But um, the way that he's brought everything around is very inspiring. He does things like drum circles and gives back to the community as much as possible, which I think is very key in mental health is the word community, just because we can't really do this thing alone. And so seeing him... Uh, bring people up is a great inspiration, and it really, as I said before, it really does make me very hopeful for the future of Native American mental health. You can check out Andrew on his Facebook pages, Drumming Sounds, and The Sacred Seven. Also, you can check out his YouTube channel, The Sacred Seven. Also, he has a website called thesacredseven.com, where you can check out his podcast as well as buy a copy of his book and his workshop, The Sacred Seven. Also, he has a cool program where you can buy a signed copy of his book, The Sacred Seven, and one will be sent to a person that is incarcerated. This discussion with Andrew was very important to me, just from his background with his parents and his background with substance abuse. Also, his background with going through the prison system, which was you know, something that, you know, thank God, I did not go through, but there were a couple times where I very well could have, so you know i really hope you enjoy this talk also there are a couple of cutouts in here um i was having some internet problems at the time but they're all fixed now but uh you know hopefully you'll still enjoy this because andrew does have a lot of great advice for anybody out there and his story is absolutely amazing so without further ado let's get straight into the video What's happening everybody welcome back to the mental health chats i am mental health casual or lucky whatever you prefer and today i have a very special guest on when i had first kind of read through his profile and you know being as socially anxious as i am i don't know why i'm still as anxious as i am whenever i have people on but um it started kind of putting me at ease as i started reading a little bit more of his profile about what he's gone through um and i think that's a great thing about having a mental health podcast because everybody who's kind of like you know oh you have anxiety like they're very very welcoming to that uh that whole space and you know we all come with our own trauma our own traumatic backgrounds and uh yeah Andrew thank you so much for being on here I really appreciate that and could you kind of talk us through you know your your own mental health journey maybe kind of where it started and you know what what you've had to endure throughout these years
1: for sure so I'd, I'd love to introduce myself here you know as uh in the traditional way, as best as I can, because I'm still trying to decolonize my own mind, uh, you know. And this is a journey for all of us, right? And then also in the contemporary so uh, language. Anyway, Dogate Andrew Ecker Yinishay adona E Nishinigi E Inde Irish Bashechin Inde Dashiche German Dashinalia Cote Go E E Tashli E Portland Oregon E Shema E Kathy Lindsey Wole Shaza E Del Ecker Wole. So I am Andrew Ecker, my mother Kathy Lindsay, my father Dale Ecker, my mother's mother Elva Gallegos, Apache woman from New Mexico, my father's mother Evelyn Beatty, Irish woman from Pennsylvania, my mother's father Leroy Lindsay, Apache man from Arkansas, my father's father Wayne Ecker, German Algonquin from Pennsylvania, I have a daughter Bailey, a son Peyton, beautiful beloved fiance Monica, I was incarnated into this body in the land of the Multnomah, under beautiful Mount Hood next to the Willamette River in Portland, Oregon, although I reside here in the land of the Achmel Atum in Phoenix, Arizona. So what a great question, Lucky. You know, when did my mental health journey start? You know, some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. You know, they talk about, you know, this like idea of your parents kind of, you know, being born into, into wealth, you know, is what they say. Well, if I was born with a spoon in my mouth, it would have to be a drug spoon, you know. A heroin spoon in fact both my parents died of drug related causes uh, mom from a cocaine overdose my father from cirrhosis of liver caused by hepatitis c basically he you know drank himself to death but had a lot of substance abuse issues prior to that and really never got off heroin or methadone or anything like that so being a little boy i was you know left at drug houses left at parks Uh, used to shoplift. When you're involved in that kind of like really deep, dark substance abuse, there's like hustles that people have, you know, to maintain their ability to get high. And some people sell their bodies, you know, some people sell drugs. uh, Some people do violent crime, you know, like breaking and entering and carjacking and all this stuff. And my parents chose to shoplift so that's what they did to really supply their their habits, and this was professional shoplifting. Uh, cars would show up when I was a little boy in the morning. I mean, I'm talking a little guy, little little, and we would go out and and just you know shop, and uh, that was actually going out and shoplifting. So my journey started very young. I can't really remember how old I was. I would like to say about five years old. Uh, the first time I started doing self harm. Uh, I tried to strangle myself at five, you know, and then started the cutting behaviors and things like that, uh, that subsequently led, you know, to a relationship with substance abuse myself, uh, which came many years later. So yeah, um, mental health has been something that I feel very passionate about, being a, a suicide survivor and also going through generational trauma you know, for many of our people, we really haven't yet to understand what that really means uh, and how that affected our parents and our grandparents. And, uh, you know, still to this day, you know, us that we walk into a national forest and we look over at a sign and it says Native Americans were here or voices of the past. And it has a picture of a Neanderthal looking Native American. You know, all these things affect our mental health, right? Just growing up as a kid, Understanding that the nation that you're in at one point tried to genocide your ancestors and has never really acknowledged that, um, there's a lot of things that we we have to learn to navigate. You know, and as an indigenous person, you know, sitting with an indigenous person, it's like, do we feel things in a different way than some people? I don't know exactly what other people feel, but I know that we feel a lot of the connection that we have to the earth, and it manifests in all kinds of ways. It manifests in anxiety, depression suicidal thoughts behaviors you know all of these things and uh you know not to say that it's all negative because there is a lot of really positive things about being indigenous in this country and beautiful ceremony and beautiful connection to the earth and the planet and one another and also you know if we make it to 35 as a man In the United States, we have the lowest rates of suicide, the lowest rates of substance abuse. And many people don't talk about that, right? Because they're usually talking about, you know, when we're teenagers and in our 20s, we got the highest rates in in the United States. So, yeah, man, it's it's challenging to say exactly the pinpoint of when I started having a relationship with mental health, Uh, but... I know that, you know, things were different for me growing up.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a, a great point that you you point out about right there. And that was actually going to be something that I was going to ask you. I mean, what do you think is, you know, because that that is something that I still have to focus on. And I also focus on, you know, I, I'm if you can read my beanie, um, I'm also half Samoan. And, uh, you know, we are also dealing with an epidemic in terms of obesity, in terms of um, drug use. I mean, what do you what do you think is? I mean, it seems like it's it's mostly uh, you know when we're talking about Native Americans who are dealing with substance abuse problems, it's a lot of res uh, based people or reservation based people. Um, what do you think is, is the cause of that? Do you think it, um, it has to do with maybe them losing um, their roots or to their ancestry of some sort, or I mean what in your opinion, what do you think that is?
1: you know in my case, it was just like I said it was the generational trauma. it was really you know coming home from school one day and i didn 't grow up on the res and i didn 't have a great medicine man dad or anything like that you know, and even my grandparents were struggling with substance abuse. And I asked my grandpa, you know, well, what am I? The kids at school are asking me. And he looked at me and, you know, he was like already drunk by the time I got home from school. And he was like, well, you're a renegade Apache, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. But I knew what I was seeing on TV, you know, what it meant to be native, like this idea of being a savage and having to be tough and a thief and all these different, you know, images that I seen. And then in my household, right, the substance abuse, the mental health issues, that my family was struggling through in an era that was really detrimental. You know, I grew up in the Reagan era, which Ronald Reagan is kind of the notorious president that cut the funding to mental health, let all kinds of people go into the streets that normally would have been given housing and given a chance. And, you know, that same era was the DARE program, which was drug abuse resistance and education and just say no, uh, which was this whole kind of propaganda machine that was put out by the United States government. You know, one of the things that I went through as a kid was the, the government was getting children to turn in their parents for smoking, you know, weed and, uh, you know, for cannabis use. And my mom, she was scared because, I mean, literally my job was to clean the stems and the seeds out of the, the pot, you know, back when pot had stems and seeds. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm like, this is my job as a kid. So when the D.A.R.E. program, you know, she had just drilled it into my head. You know, you can't say anything. And they're probably going to ask you. So they came into my school. My heart is beating out of my chest. My, my hands are sweaty. I'm thinking to myself, you know, man, what am I going to do? They're going to take me into the, you know, the back room and interrogate me. I literally was so scared, lucky that I went to the bathroom on myself. You know, I'm an elementary school kid and it's like I get like there's a part of me that feels the, the empathy for this little boy. That's really just trying to figure things out. And the police, you know, these are armed police officers. They didn't like said take me into a, a dark room and interrogate me, but they said something to me that was detrimental to my overall mental health. And that was if you have one drug addict parent, you're 50 percent more likely to become a drug addict. And that whole idea of this eugenic you know, this idea that I'm genetically flawed, you know, this is the basis of white supremacy. And this is what has been going on systematically throughout indigenous communities around the world. Um, and it's subtle, you know, these ideas of, of white supremacy sometimes have even infiltrated our communities in a way that we haven't fully embraced understanding. Um You know, I I remember going to the Polynesian Cultural Center in in Hawaii and being there and meeting this uh, man from Samoa. And he was like a little like He-Man doll, you know, he was like all ripped and everything. And he was climbing these coconut trees and and he was coming down with these coconuts and peeling them barehanded, you know, basically. And it was amazing. It was like a demonstration of strength and also cultural understanding and a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, yet I kind of got him to the side, you know, and I started talking to him, and he was, he was, he had brought up the same conversation that you did about diabetes, about you know mental health, about depression and addiction, and he said that this isn't our way, you know. He said that an average life in Samoa, just his grandparents, was a hundred, a hundred twenty-five years, and in our tradition, you know, from like one of my elders, my uncle Ted Begay, you know, he says. You know, the first part of the sweat lodge is 25 years. The second part is 50 years. The third part is 75. And the fourth part is 100. And that's an average life. Lucky is 100 years, you know. And we've gotten to this misconception in our idea that the contemporary medicine is what has longevity of life. And that may be true for the European story. But for our story, it's actually the exact opposite. You know, this way of life has, has taken our quality of life away in a lot of ways. And actually, the longevity of our existence has gone down. So we need to be aware of how we can get back to that more natural uh, idea of life. And also understand that we're living in a toxic environment. So what can we proactively do to combat that and try to do our best to, of course, stay healthy eat foods that are rich in nutrients, you know, get away from the fast food, man, you know, like little simple things like that. Like I, you know, for years of my life, I would get these hard boil kind of pimples on my face, you know, you know, that one that won't pop, man. And you're like, (laughs) right. You want to do surgery on it and everything. And, uh, you know, I was like, why is this happening to me? And then I realized if I drink a soda, I get a pimple, you know, and it was just like, okay, I cut out the sodas. I don't have this you know, expression of being toxic, I don't have it anymore. Uh, yet, you know, it takes kind of a level of self-awareness to get yourself there and also to break the patterns of, you know, man, I take a little hit of that Coca-Cola, that Dr. Pepper, and I feel good, you know. Uh, and it's like even the straw, you know, it's in the same kind of way. We drink it like we would, you know, nurse as a child. And it takes us back to that idea that we're, you know, comforted by that. Um, uh, you know, our lips are in the same position that they would be as a little baby, you know, nursing on a, on a on their mom. So these are all little things that, you know, as we get this information out here, and I'm so grateful, Lucky, that we're able to talk this way, you know, and share with the people because, you know, we really do need to do our best to navigate this, you know, this contemporary culture. And, you know, of course, there's so much going on, man, with the way that people feel right now. It's like, wow, you know, trying to do my best to help out and um, be a voice, you know, to share that I am a suicide survivor, that I have gone through the substance abuse, those things, just that, you know, intimacy and vulnerability really opening up. It gives people hope.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a really good point. And I, I really, you know, I mean, I, I, I've always wondered how to bring these conversations up to even my own people, right? Because, you know, these are things that are very hard to talk about in our own communities, Um, And I'm always, you know, I'm just a little bit curious, you know, you know, obviously you seem so uh, you seem very well put together today, you know, you have a family, all that kind of stuff. What was because I feel like uh, there's a common theme in a lot of these interviews that I do where somebody has like a rock bottom moment where they either um, where they would either fall or, you know, they start to figure out who they are. I mean, did you have that rock bottom moment? And what was it for you?
1: Yeah, you know, it was a series of really seeing my consciousness change my reality. And, you know, at first it was like, oh, if I focus on love, if I feel love, then it's like it's all over the place. You know, Uh, I turn on the radio and it's a love song. I turn on the television. It's a it's a love movie or something like that. I'm walking down the street. It's a billboard that says, you know, I love you or whatever. And it was just like, oh, it's expansive. And then right I started getting into places of, this is as a teenager. I went through a really dark time as a, a young person. And then I had stability for four years where my grandparents on my dad's side took me in. And I was bounced around from family member to family member for many years of my life. You know, aunties, uncles, grandparents. I mean, everybody basically had a little hand in raising me because my mom was on drugs. Dad was on drugs. So for those four years, I grounded in. Well, as it got close to the end of my high school years, my grandparents started saying, you know, you're going to have to find a place to live because we're not going to take care of you anymore. Well, all of this home insecurity came forward and I started getting really just um, overwhelmed uh, with that idea. I was so afraid of, you know, and it sounds like, you know, hey, man up or whatever, but I was scared. And I ended up moving in with an aunt who had substance abuse issues. And I just went downhill really fast from there. I actually, my, uh, my baby's mom at the time was my high school sweetheart. And she was pregnant. I was feeling the stress and the pressure of that. I tried to go into the military at that point because I had a grandfather that was in the military, but he was abusive to me. And it just brought this whole kind of concept into my mind that the military was going to make that in me. And I just, it it turned out to be no good for me. But subsequently, the neighborhood drug dealer kind of gave me that pat on the back. Started experimenting with harder drugs now. You know, I had done like lines and stuff like that, but this is where I started to get into meth and started to get into smoking cocaine and, you know, doing some really uh, intense behaviors. Next thing I know, the same like energy that's inside of me that's causing the radio to play the love song that's in my mind is now causing the radio to play the suicidal song that's in my mind. You know, the television is literally, I'll walk into the room and I'll think to myself, I just don't want to live anymore. The TV, the person on the television looks over at me and says, you should die. You know, and it's like a, a program, maybe it's like a, you know, a television program, but I'm hearing this inside of my mind that it's talking directly to me. And it just starts to get overwhelming. And next thing you know, I'm like giving all my stuff away. And I'm like, you know, walking, you know, for hours and hours at night and coming into this place where I'm seeing like all of this perpetuation of my own consciousness in the world around me. And it's a deep, dark rabbit hole, you know, of like to the point where I start to believe that I'm God. I start to believe that I'm the Messiah, you know, and that I've come to save everyone, but yet I can't pay my own rent, you know? <laughs> I can't keep a job, but I have the answers to the universe. And these these types of behaviors were like a uh, a transitional moment in my life where I was coming into what people would call a psychosis. You know, I feel in the traditional way that this would be what people would call a spiritual awakening, You know, and back in the day, it seems like there's a memory in my DNA of people nurturing that type of experience. You know, I can't say that there's a a history of that. I can't say that there's, you know, in our tradition, uh, you know, in the Apache tradition, if there was a shaman or something like that or a great medicine man that would have helped people. But I want to believe that, you know, I want to believe that that people like myself that were going through these struggles of mental health were either given guidance or loved. But instead, the United States government, you know, was locking me up and I was going in and out of county jail. I would go in for a little bit and then the uh, the feelings of despair, the feelings of suicide would lead me right back to substance abuse. Because now I'm trying to navigate right. These these ideas of my consciousness outside of myself in the television, in the radio, on the billboards all over. And even people, you know, are coming into my field and they're saying things to me that I'm thinking that they know what I'm thinking about what they're saying, (laughs) but it's actually a totally different conversation. And this is just perpetuating this whole like deep kind of state of darkness. So, you know, I got blessed really because I can tell you that uh, living in that space, many people don't make it out of that. You know, they end up saying something to the wrong person, getting killed. They end up, you know, walking out in front of a car and trying to stop it. They jump off a building thinking they can fly. I mean, there's all kinds of things that happen. You know, our level of suicide rates are, is one thing. But if you count the accidents that were intentionally done on people, who knows what those numbers are? So I was, um, you know, at this point really getting into heavy psychedelics. And I was selling LSD and mushrooms. And I was managing my own kind of expansive, what I call expansive consciousness, or you could call it psychosis, whatever you want to call it, with these substances. And I got really heavy into the rave scene, the underground uh, party scene. And also, I'm a drummer. So, you know, and I, I didn't grow up with traditional like Native American drumming or powwow or anything like that. I play like bingi drumming, you know, like. Like, uh, you know, West African and Latin and Middle Eastern and just drum circles. I love that. So, uh, yeah, it was a part of that whole cultural scene, you know, like that was a culture for me it still is like to be honest with you, like a lot of people look at it and they think, oh, these are all hippies with dreadlocks and everything. But that was the safest place that I ever encountered the drum, you know, and I got caught up in this whole scene and it really uh, it was something beautiful for me, but it also led me to, you know, federal prison. Uh, and while I was in federal prison, I got access to a 500 hour drug rehabilitation program, lucky. And that was like, you know, it was beautiful for me because that was the safest I ever felt, man. You know, was doing three and a half years in federal prison. Like, this sounds really contradictory to what we see on television, right? That prison is a safe place. But again, you know, back to that feeling of home insecurity that I had as a kid, you know, when they told me that I had three and a half years, that I didn't have to worry about paying rent, I didn't have to worry about feeding myself, I didn't have to worry about a job or putting on a, you know, a job application that I was a felon or medicating myself trying to find, you know, substances to help my mentality. All of these things, man, it was a relief. And that was the first time I read a book. You know, from cover to cover was while I was in there. And I started, you know, really seeking spirituality. I got a book called We're All Doing Time by the Prison Ashram Society. And it talked about meditation and yoga and, you know, all of these great ideas of spirituality. I started praying. I started fasting, started reading the, excuse me, started reading the Bible and really got into Christianity. So if I was to say that my darkest point, you know, in my journey with mental health it would definitely have to be walking into the room and having the television tell me that I should kill myself. You know, these things of like the expanse of my consciousness were so intense. And I remember literally being like I was I had the remnants of this when I was in prison. And I would be in line, you know, trying to go to chow because you have to line up and sometimes it's like 100 guys, 200 guys in this line. And as I was standing there, Uh, The guys would be talking and I would start hearing them talking about me, you know, and they're just chatting it up. They're not talking about me, but I'm starting to internalize it that they're talking about me. And next thing you know, I start feeling uncomfortable. I start feeling like I need to run and I would leave the line and go back to my room and just wait till everybody was done. And then I would go up for the last two or three guys Well, you know, I started having like more friends and my friends wouldn't let, you know, they were like, hey, let's go to chow. So I didn't want to seem like a, you know, like I wasn't like I was too afraid to stand in the line. And I remember reading in the Bible, it said that God is love. So I was like, I'm just going to focus on love when all these voices are going on around me. And that's what I did. I just started saying love, love, love until I was screaming love in the back of my head. Right. And the homies would be all like, hey, what's up, Ecker? You know what's going on? And I'd be like, yeah, what's going on, you know? But I'm screaming in the back of my mind, love, 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 trying to drown out these feelings of fear. And then one day, it was just like, it just all went away. You know, it was like, I just felt this peace uh, that happens. Now, I can tell you that I still have a relationship to that energy. Like, for instance, if I'm in an argument with a loved one, or if I'm in a disagreement at maybe like, uh, you know, like gosh, like a restaurant or something like that, I can start to feel my, my level of awareness go up. And it's like, there's still remnants of that neuro pathway in my mind, uh, that activation, it's just not as intense. It's more manageable now. And these behaviors don't happen very often anymore. You know, um, Probably the last time that I had like a post-traumatic stress, you know, behavior was probably two and a half years ago. And my fiance had gone to a training and she was gone for three days. So I, you know, I'm in this whole like panic. I'm hearing like crackles outside the room and out in the backyard. The dogs are
0: barking at everything. What's happening everybody? Editor Lucky here. I apologize about that, but I did have some technical difficulties. So, I'll be continuing the conversation and I just wanted to make sure it wasn't an awkward cut. So, just wanted to explain myself right there. But, back to the conversation. For everybody, you know, we just got back over here and, you know, I was asking Andrew, you know, a bit about his, you know, the darkest point in his life, that rock bottom moment and um and you know that that kind of thing that cuz I feel like there's there's really always going to be that time where, you know, you can either you know, you can either run or fight, you know, that fight or flight kind of response. And um, I really like what you were saying, um, you know, about this whole idea of love, this whole idea of Um, And it it almost seems like you're kind of replacing the thoughts that you normally have with a more positive thing so that even though they're very intrusive, they can be very intrusive. They are very um, even if they are uh, even if they're always going, then they actually have the right message instead of the wrong message. Um, And I really like that about that. But could you kind of talk about this? I mean, you had mentioned drumming and I know you do drum circles. You do, uh, um, you know, How does that really, um, you know, how how does that help people and who have you helped? Like what backgrounds have people come from? I know, I think I saw on there like cancer patients, like different types of uh, people from different backgrounds. I mean, what was, uh, you know, what kind of people go to that and how does it help them?
1: Oh, sweet. So uh, yeah, one of the things that I wanted to share is that I have, I still have a relationship with post-traumatic stress, you know, and that's how I like to, to term it before I get into like the work that I'm doing now. Because I feel like a lot of people, they feel like they need to get over these ideas of their mental health. You know, you need to get over your depression. You need to get over your anxiety. And it puts all this pressure on us. And we start to say, you know, why am I having this experience? I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be over this. So like two years ago, you know, two and a half, maybe uh, my fiance left on a trip and I had a PTSD experience where I started, you know, I barricaded myself in my bedroom. And I mean, I'm a business owner, I'm an author, I'm a professional speaker, and I'm having this experience with my mental health. And I really started beating myself up, you know, I was like, what the is wrong with you? You know, you're supposed to be over this. And I told my fiance that, and she said, well, what did you do? And I said, well, I put a a chair in front of the door, you know, I I put something in front of the door, so if somebody came through, I would hear them. And she's like, is that all you needed? to feel safe. And I was like, yeah. And just hearing that, man, it just like released so much from me because sometimes like those of us that have grown up with trauma or we've grown up with anxiety or depression or some of these things, we feel like we need to get over it all the time, you know, and we beat ourselves up. So I just wanted to give that little thing over there, be gentle with yourself. You know, that's what the elders tell me, be gentle, love yourself, you know, be kind to yourself. So in my life now, um, we in 2019, we facilitated 587 wellness-based programs. Uh, both me and my fiance are trained in an uh, evidence-based healing modality called Health Rhythms. It was developed by a psychoneuroimmunologist and a music therapist. Now, what that means is that we have the language, right, to go into these hospitals and do drum circles. Now, what does a drum circle look like for us? It's just a bunch of different drums we hand out to people. We get them drumming together, singing together, and we put a message, a positive message of love and gratitude into that container. And man, we've worked with psychiatric lockdowns, memory care, skilled nursing, cancer facilities, uh, suicide prevention work. I've worked with, uh, six different Native American tribes, uh, four different Native American nonprofits, you know, um, yeah, it's just been a long journey of helping people, literally thousands of people. And, you know, a lot of music festivals. I mean, we've done like Burning Man, Eclipse, Symbiosis, Lucidity, uh, Love Long Beach, a uh, pot of gold music festival. I mean, a whole list of music festivals. And, you know, some of those music festivals, when people see me out there drumming with people, they've, you know, the social media has, has, you know, labeled me a, a fake shaman and all kinds of things out there, you know, because of this work that I'm doing. And, you know, it's like, I feel like because what I'm doing is not traditional, there isn't a reference point for people, you know, it's like a contemporary version of these ancient technologies. And I get it, you know, for a person that looks at that, that grew up with a tradition, whether it be like Native American drumming, or they grew up with the tradition of West African drumming or Middle Eastern drumming, and they see a whole bunch of people from different backgrounds drumming together. It looks like, well, what is this? You know, why are these people drumming? What are they doing? You know, what ritual, what ceremony is this? And it's a ceremonial experience. It's a ritualistic experience, yet it's, it's not that there's a reference point for it. You know, it's not that we're, you know, teaching people to do a sunrise dance or some, or, you know, a gone ceremony or a yebache ceremony or a Kachina ceremony or anything like that. It's just that we're getting them connected to the drum. And, Man, lucky. It's like, you know, for somebody who doesn't have anything that they can control in their life, you know, maybe their mom is using drugs or their dad's using drugs, or they can't even get themselves off of alcohol and drugs. When you hit that drum, right? It's like, man, that's a sound. I controlled that. You know, I I got control over this. And it's just such a, like a powerful experience. You know, somebody that's going through cancer treatment, somebody that's going through, you know, bullying at school, maybe they, They don't feel loved by their classmates, but when they hit the drum and they express what they felt in their hearts, it's powerful. So powerful.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, you know, could you kind of expand on that a little bit? I feel like one of the reasons that um, your drum circles seem so, uh, so, you know, amazing in terms of their, their success rate is the accessibility to it, right? Like you're not asking people to play uh, guitar. You're not asking people, you know, you're literally asking people to get physical with this, with this thing where they can kind of uh, get into it. I mean, is that is that one of the reasons why it's so successful is the accessibility factor of it?
1: Oh, Lucky, you hit it on the head, man. In fact, at the very beginning of the program, I kind of had this spiel. And I say, you know, if you were participating in something like this, In Africa, you know, in West Africa, they might call it Dundumboa. If you were participating in something like this in Ireland, they'll call it Drama Circal. In Italy, Tarantara. In Belize, Punta. In Mexico, Bomba. In Egypt, Hafla. And in Hawaii, Luau. And us, the Native American people, we oftentimes call it drums or we call it powwow, right? You know, and I say that all of these cultural representations, almost everything is different except one thing. And that's the most important part because it comes from the hearts of the people. And I say that's a sacred space. And we can go there today if we all do this. So everybody put your hand in front of your mouth and say the word judgment. And then we take judgment and we physically throw it out of the circle. And that's this idea, you know, that music is for everybody, man. Music is like the drum. If it's really what we say as indigenous people, it's the heartbeat of the planet Then everybody can connect to that heartbeat. And maybe that's why the reason why, you know, people can look at the mountain and they can see it like with a mini mall on it or a retreat center or a hotel, you know, and we look at the mountain and we see like a relative, you know, like, oh, you know, it's an uncle right there. That's like my family. You know, the mountain is my family. It's valuable. I don't want to put something on it or mess it up. I just want to look at it the way it is. It's beautiful. Maybe that's why the heartbeat, maybe it tells us that, you know, maybe it helps us get back to that natural journey of life. And for me, right, that's where I feel that I can help, you know, I can help and show up and, and bring something beautiful to people. That's been a relationship that's helped me in my life. Like the drum is my teacher, you know, it's my guru, you know, it's my, it's my like medicine man, you know, it's my medicine woman. It's like, it's just such a valuable relationship I have.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up an excellent point, and I was going to ask you about this because out of the the video that I did see, I did take away that that whole uh, you know speaking judgment into your hand and kind of throwing it out. And it reminds me of uh, one of my drama teachers. One time, got very mad at us because we we kind of took a, a exercise that we were supposed to be doing and kind of turned it on her, and we started you know touching her, you know like kind of like poking at her and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, she kind of she got angry at us, yelled at us and told us, "Okay, I want you to take all the anger, you know, like a Hulk fist, you know, and just release it. How important is that visual visualization process that that, um, you know, actually visually um, manifesting things and actually seeing the judgment go away or seeing, you know, whatever you're trying to put out there? How important is that to uh, what you're doing?
1: You know, I like to say that that like the architecture, the energetic architecture that we're creating is actually I would say that it's more real than the actual experience right the way that we view the experience the way that we think about the experience how our heart relates to it is the realest part of the entire totality of what's being created so what is inside of our minds and how we connect to that idea is the point of agreement and i feel like this is something that our indigenous communities around the world have understood We've understood that the place of agreement is the place of power. And when you fortify that energetically with the vibration of the drum, you create a gravity in the field of reality. And you know, Lucky, I can. this is going to sound a little bit woohoo for people maybe, but we go into hospitals sometimes and it's like me and my beloved will have to come back and take our clothes off in the garage because we smell like a hospital. You know, we smell like poo and pee, these psychiatric lockdowns that we go into. And from time to time, when we come in with the drum and we really get the people resonating in that frequency, that infinite you know, like possibility, you know, judgment-free zone, sometimes the smell will change. You know, sometimes we'll smell an aroma of like roses through the air. And I remember reading in the Bible, they said that Jesus was the rose of Sharon. And when he would walk through the lepers, people would smell the smell of roses. You know, and I I don't know if that's like, if that experience, I can reference it to this experience that I've had, but I know that when you get people together loving each other, you know, and the nurses and the doctors are dancing in the middle of the drum circle and it's community, it's not a hospital anymore. You know, it's not patients and this person has got mental illness and this person's got cancer and we're just people, you know, there's something magical, man, that happens that's like really spiritual. And I'm not talking about like some kind of like, you know, on your knees, like in the, you know, in a church kind of thing. I mean, I'm talking like real, like, I mean, you know, and that's also real. Let me put, let me take that back out of my language. You know, your church pew and all of that, that's real too. You know, I was there for many years of my life. Yet this idea of being with the people, man, being with like just people that are hurting, you know, some of these people in these hospitals, it's like we're the only people that that come to visit them. You know, this one dude named Porkchop, uh, his name was James, but, you know, he goes by Porkchop. He was a, a train jumper and he fell asleep, you know, in front of a fire and he woke up and his legs were burned and they ended up taking his legs off. And I remember prior to the pandemic, right before we, you know, we went on lockdown, we did a drum circle and he you know, walked us out. Well, didn't walk us out, but he rolled us out with his wheelchair and he he looked up and he had tears in his eyes. And he told me and my, my beloved, he was like, you're the only reason why I'm alive. He's like, I don't want to be here anymore. It's like, but I really look forward to the drum circle and thank you for coming, you know? And I'm like, man, I get emotional, you know, just sharing that story because there's just so many of those, you know, one time I was in this hospital and this is like multiple doors you got to go through, you know, Locked doors with keypad codes and stuff like that. And I come in and I sit down and I put the drum there and it's a women's room. It's all women in there. And this woman comes over and she like, you know, I start playing a little bit. She sits like really close to me. She like pulls her chair over to sit like almost like in my lap. And the activity coordinator comes over and she whispers in my ear and she's like, don't bother. You know, don't worry about her. She's a wanderer. That's what she tells me. I'm like, you know, I don't know what a wanderer is. Like, I'm assuming that means she wanders around the place. So I start playing. I just start singing like some old, like rock and roll songs. You know, I start singing some songs that I learned when I was out there growing hair, dreadlocks and stuff like that. And some Bob Marley songs and everything. Next thing you know, this woman starts singing with me. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, we're having a good time. And I get up. And, you know, right before I got up to kind of break up there, you know, the activity coordinator, the person who hired me had ran out of the room and got the head of nursing and the executive director. And they're now in the doorway watching me and this woman have this experience. And I'm like, you know, that's cool. You know, whatever. And I'm putting the drums away and she comes up and she grabs me by the arms. And she's like, Andrew, you have no idea what just happened. I was like, yeah, we had a great time. And she goes in seven years that I've worked here, that woman has never sat still for any activities. She has never sat still. We have never heard her say anything to anyone in seven years of being here. And I just think to myself, you know, how sad is that, man? You know, that this is like, like me, the son of two junkies can come in here and show this woman a good life. And you guys with your all your degrees and everything else. This woman can't even be human around you. She can't sing songs around you. She doesn't even feel safe to be around you, you know? Like, this is, this is what we're faced with in the institutions. You know, and they're doing their best, man. These nurses and doctors, they're doing their best with the tools that they have. You know, they just don't have these, these tools, these ancient tools that are woven into the fabric of our DNA. Man, that's why when you play the drum, it's like it restores that natural journey, you know, the journey of life. It restores the sacred circle. It brings us back to that place of connection. And it's sacred, man. It's holy. It's like the most miraculous thing that I've ever experienced in my life. And I mean, I've been to the altar a few times and confessed my sins, you know, but this is just so beautiful. It's just real.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, you bring up actually a good point. And if you could elaborate on this, because I feel like, you know, maybe one of the reasons why you are so successful with talking to these people that have gone through a lot is your own backstory, right? Because you have empathy towards somebody that maybe has um, given up on this life that you have empathy towards people that have dealt with substance abuse, right? Um, My therapist was very successful with me because he was actually a sufferer of social anxiety. So he kind of knew exactly all the pitfalls. And I've fell in a couple of them anyway. But, um, you know, I mean, what has that um, has living that life, you know, um, you know, as tragic as it may have been, has it helped you empathize with the people that you're working with? Oh, man, you
1: know, that's what I call finding your medicine. And, you know, I'm not the first person to say that, you know, medicine in our traditional way, as best of my understanding is, is anything that you use in your life to help people, you know, it might be an herbal medicine, it might be a song, it might be a painting, it might be a dance. Most importantly, it's your story, right? That's your power, that's your medicine. And whenever you can in, uh, use your story to help people, it starts to make sense of the story that you have. And when I share with the people, when I we go into the hospitals, and both me and my beloved have, uh, our parents were institutionalized. So it's like I'm coming home to see my mom, you know that wasn't able to get the help that she needed. I'm coming to see my dad that wasn't able to get the help that he needed. And these are all my family members. And that's the way that I look at them. I don't look at them as a disease, as something dysfunctional. I hold the space for them to be an earthling prior to me ever playing the drum with them. I'm already believing that they're gonna have a miraculous experience. And this is something that is contrary at times to the contemporary world of medicine. You know, Lucky, sometimes we'll bring the drums in and we'll set them down in front of the elders. This happens more often in memory care than any other place. You know, we work with dementia patients and Alzheimer's. We set the drum down and the nurses will come over and say, well, she won't play. You know, and I'm like, well, let's just keep the drum there in case. And I used to say 90% of the time people, you know, that person will start drumming. And my fiance, she's been working with me for almost five years now. And she says, no, Andrew, it's 99% of the time that that person starts drumming and that's because we both believe that that person is going to have a human experience and the more that we do this quantum you know physics and the more that we get into the way that our heart resonates and you know some of the work of dr joe joe dispenza and some of these amazing scientists that are judging you know the frequency that we put out the energy that we put out in our minds the way that this creates you know, our reality, it's so important.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point, right? It's almost, it's, uh it's almost like, it's almost like an opposite effect, right? You know, the doctors are uh, expecting the worst case scenario, you're expecting the best case scenario, right? And I feel like, to a certain degree, that has to do a lot with the energy that you're putting out, right? Like, I feel like we, sometimes as human beings, we kind of, we've gotten so advanced, that sometimes we, we, uh, we forget how important it is to, or, how uh, adept people are at picking up on our auras and picking up on, you know, the the auras of a room, the energy of a room. And yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, one of the other things that I noticed in a lot of these, um, or at least the clips that I saw of your drum circles was, um, it seems like there's like a sense of community that these people are being brought together for something. Um, How important is community? I mean, in general for mental health,
1: Oh, man, community is, is so vital. When I was a kid, there used to be this, you know, they, when they were doing all this propaganda around the D.A.R.E. program and just say no, and they were pumping the television and all of the, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, you know, it's like a scrambled egg or fried egg. Well, one of the videos that they show was this mouse, right? And this mouse had this cage, and in the cage there was a bottle of water, and a bottle of cocaine water. And the mouse would go over and drink the cocaine water until its heart exploded. And this is like validation for the addictive, you know, ability of cocaine. Cocaine will kill you the very first time you take a hit. You know, you're you're never gonna survive, you know, being addicted to cocaine. This is what they were putting out in the world. So fast forward to some scientists that said, wow, I wonder what would happen If we gave the rat rat heaven to live in, you know, he's got little rat homies to go play with. He's got like a ball to run around in. He's got a wheel to run around in, you know, he's got little things to climb up on and everything. And same thing. They got the, you know, the two bottles of water, one water, one cocaine water. You know, what happened with the mouse is the mouse would occasionally go and use the cocaine water, but it wouldn't kill itself on the cocaine. And that's the thing, man, this this idea of epigenetics, like how we evolve to our environment, our community, the way that we live in this world and function with the trees, the animals, you know, the expanse of our community, our friendships, those that we choose to be in our life. This is really the foundation of living in abundance. The more that we have integration, which is really what we all desire, because that's that point of which we are connected to source. You know, we're all connected to the very life source that created this entire experience. That's the meeting point, right? That's the all my relations. You know, we say when we're in the sweat lodge, you know, to all my relations, you know, meaning I am related to all of you. I'm related to the air, the water, the fire, the earth, to gravity, time, the spirit within us. You know, I'm related to everything around me. This is my relationship. And this value of living in all my relations. It's more than just a bumper sticker on a, you know, on a bumper. It's more than a t-shirt. It's more than a trendy statement. It's a way of life that brings abundance into you. And right. I can share that when you show up for community, you're the person right. That's blessed the most, you know, everybody else is blessed too, you know, but you're the one that gets the most out of it. You know, one of the hospitals that we go to, we've gone to for about 10 years, and it's up on the north side of Phoenix. And every, you know, month I would go there and set up the drums and this man would come out and he was, we, they had to like wheel him out in a bed. Lucky he wasn't even in a wheelchair, you know, and his hands were atrophied like this. They looked like claws. So I'd have to pry his hand open and put a maraca in his hand because he couldn't really play the drum, but he'd shake the maraca and he'd say, hallelujah, hallelujah. With like this great big smile on his face. Well, one day I came and I set up the drums and I'm like, you know, where's my buddy Vance at? And I asked the activity coordinator, the person who hired me, and she said, well, he, you know, he passed. He went home to heaven. I was like, well, good for him, you know. I said, you know, I've been coming here for 10 years, and he came out every month to drum with me. I said, how long did he live in this hospital? And, you know, they told me he lived in that hospital for 28 years, man. 28 years in the same hospital bed, dude. 28 years in the same room. And he still never lost his community. You know, he still never quit showing up. And it's like, that dude's a hero for me. You know, God bless Vance Gribbins and his whole family because that puts things in perspective. You know what I'm saying? Like here, this dude is, he can't even, he can't even walk to the drum circle. He can't even wheel himself to the drum circle. And if the nurses came by and asked him, you know, Hey, Mr. Gribbins, you want to come out? And he said, no, they would have said, oh, okay. You know? We'll just go on to the next person. Eventually they would have forgot about him and just kept him in his room watching, you know, judge Judy and potato chips, you know, but instead he came out and what did he do? He served the community with the best that he could shaking that maraca. And this guy probably weighed 90 pounds. I mean, he was like, you know, whatever he had, I don't know what kind of, you know, symptom, or whatever it was, it just kind of shrunk him and shriveled him up. But he, man, just such a spirit inside of him. Beautiful, powerful spirit that I hope, you know, in my time when I'm, you know, an older person and it's harder for me to get my drums and go to hospitals, I'm still, you know, in that mindset, right? Community mindset.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great thing. You know, my my grandfather suffered from uh, dementia before he passed, and so, um, you know, well, that was actually one of the last things that he he lost was his strength. You know, I'm I'm about six three, maybe two eighty. Uh, 280 pounds and uh, you know when the nurses had trouble restraining him I had to go in there restrain him and then I had trouble restraining him because he was so strong he was a tire worker he was doing all this stuff and so but he was also a drummer as well and you know he had this electronic drum set that he'd play with the headphones in, so he didn't bother my grandma and uh, yeah it really does seem to um, it really you know it really seems to be such a a vital connection especially if you grew up in that environment if you um, if that was like you know, that, that was kind of like an escape for him at that point. You know, he didn't have to remember anything. He just had to play. And I think that's such a great thing that I, I, it seemed, uh, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like it brings everybody to the present in your drum circles, right? Because everybody's focused on a task at hand. They're focused on the physical, the physicality of what's going on. Um, In your, in your experiences, you know, what are some of the biggest mental health promotion hurdles, you know, in terms of promoting mental health? Because, you know, we talk about stigma and I feel like maybe, I mean, it's definitely gotten better from when it was maybe like the 80s and 90s, even before that, Right. But it still seems like there's a little bit of a hurdle to, to pass up. I mean, what are some of the biggest hurdles you think um, we have to face going forward as mental health promoters?
1: Yeah, I think it's just our practice, you know, as people that have come to a place of intimacy with our mental health, right? The more that we become a voice and the more that we give others permission to have a voice, the more that that kind of culture that we have will manifest. And it's really important to share the, the real nitty gritty of things. You know, when I got on here and I said that I went to the bathroom on myself, you know, as a kid, you know, that happened all the way up into the sixth grade. When I said that I, you know, barricaded myself in my room as a grown man, you know, these are things that we need to share with each other because it's important to, to, even though I'm an author, even though I'm a business owner, even though I'm a coach, you know, and a facilitator and all this stuff, you know, I still have a relationship to my mental health and guess what? You can be successful. And have a relationship to your depression, have a relationship to your anxiety, all of these things. We can live in a world where we can function and do our best and navigate it with the help of community and also with the help of medicine if you need it. You know, if you need to have uh, some kind of psychotropic medicine, some kind of pill that you need to take, you know, do it. Whatever's going to help you. You know, and also change your diet as best as you can. You know, get off the junk food, you know, fast. You know, what would it feel like if you gave yourself two, three days just to drink water? You're not going to die drinking water for two or three days. It's going to help you align your body. You know, meditate, do exercise, you know, all of these natural things that you can do to help yourself. The resistance that comes forward, you know, in our lives is really an illusion. Because we're the ones that are keeping ourselves in that place of being locked. Sometimes the best time that you can say something is when you don't feel like it. You know, when you don't feel like talking about mental health, when you just want it to be another side point, you know, something that you don't want to talk about. That's usually when, you know, spirit's going to show up. I'll give you an example. We were at a really odd music festival for us, and that was Pot of Gold. And when I say odd, it was like a very contemporary, you know, Budweiser-sponsored you know event and we usually go to the more of the transformative music festivals which they have yoga and they have you know permaculture and you know parenting classes and all this kind of really amazing like not only music great music but culture and this one was more of the beer kind of you know party kind of scene but i got, i went because i wanted to see this one particular artist so we're setting up the drum circle and there's like man there's like 1500 people that are around us doing this circle and we're drumming. And I stopped the music and something compelled me to say, you know, I just want to let all of you know, that I'm a suicide survivor and we have the highest rates of suicide ever recorded in history. And there are people right now in this circle that are struggling and they might be drinking their beer and having a smile on their face. But when they go home tonight, they're gonna probably think about hurting themselves. How many of you will raise your hands right now and let this audience know that you're a suicide survivor too? It was the first time in, in my, uh, with my fiance that she raised her hand. And there was probably like about 40 or 50 people that raised their hands and said they were suicide survivors. But one young man was across from me. And lucky, it was like he was looking through me, you know? He had that look, like that 1,000-yard look. Like, what the is this guy talking about, you know? Like, what is he talking about being a suicide survivor? Like, it was just, and he turned like stark white. And after we were setting up the, you know, putting the drums away and everything, this guy is like overhelping. He's like tripping over drums to help. And I grabbed him by the arms and I said, brother, you know, I see you. And I just want you to know that you're loved and you're safe, man. And you don't have to do this. And dude, in the middle of this freaking Budweiser, vodka, all of this, you know, stuff, this kid, this like 20 something year old kid starts snot bubble crying. Like I'm holding this kid, man. And he's crying to me, you know, and I'm like, it just wasn't anything like big that I said to him, you know, but it was like one of those moments where it was like something needed to be said. And I just felt like the guidance of the spirit, you know, to say that. And I don't know what happened to that kid. He kind of like, you know, went off into the sea of people. But I know that that moment right in our lives was a moment that transformed both of us. You know, I'm sharing his story right now with you. And we've gotten other, you know, people, when we're out at these festivals, man, there's a lot of psychedelic use. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of drug use, period. And we'll go and we'll set up the drum circle in an alcohol-free zone. We'll even, some of the places will let us have a fire. Because these are camping events. Three-day, four-day, sometimes week-long festivals. And that fire is a safe place for these kids to come. And I'll share stories, you know, about my life. And man, one time I got a call from this, this woman in Florida. And I'm like, what is this Florida call? You know, I thought it was a gig or something. I pick it up and she's like, do you remember so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And like, I was like, no, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm sorry. I'd like to help you. And she's like, no, that's my son. And he's in jail. And he gave me, he told me to find this guy named Andrew that facilitates drum circles. And he said that you said something that could help him. And he wants to call you. And can he call you, you know, cause it's a collect call. She's like, I'll pay for it. And I was like, yeah, sure. So he called me and I ended up having conversation with this dude. And it was like, just such an amazing experience, you know, because I feel like a lot of times we put mental health right into this idea of it needs to be a suicide prevention conference, or it needs to be, you know, an outreach to a mental health, whatever, And really, it's just about you showing up in your community and doing your best, man. If you go play, you know, softball and you see your homie over there having a difficult time, you know, go talk to him, you know, share with them. You're a suicide survivor. You know, if you're out, you know, whatever it is you're doing, you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, do a post. You know, this is how we, we really save people's lives. Literally. I mean, we literally save people's lives doing this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I hope that encourages somebody out there.
0: Yeah. And you, you bring up an excellent point. This is the, my final question before you know I, I ask you to kind of throw your message out there um, to the people. But um, you bring up an interesting point. I wanted to ask you about this since you you know, you know have been to prison and all that kind of stuff. I mean, how do people maintain their mental health in that environment? Right. It seems like it would be um, pretty tough. I know there is a lot of emphasis on physical activity. I know I, you know I had a conversation with a teacher about that. Um, and it, you know, that also makes sense. I know that there, I, I, believe so that there's usually like a chaplain or something like that, that, that is over there as well. Um, but could you kind of explain how, you know, how somebody in prison maybe could help with their mental health? And I mean, could you explain maybe some examples of you, uh, you overcoming those hurdles in prison?
1: Yeah. So I was really fortunate because when I was a teenager, My dad, I was bringing him a bag of weed. I was selling my dad a bag of weed. And he was like, son, you're going to prison. I was like, F you, dad. What do you mean I'm going to prison? And he gave it to me like this, which I hope this helps somebody. And this is what I would say to my son or my daughter if they were caught up in, you know, the hustling, you know, the game, whatever you want to call it, the trap, the kids call it nowadays, you know, like if you there's a culture that's involved in prison life, right? Right. And that doesn't mean that you need to be a part of that culture. You know, you can be your own person in there. And the greatest gift that anybody can ever tell you when you're doing time is, man, you know how to do your time. And I've been told that before. You know, I've been told, man, you know how to do your time. And the reason is, is because I listened to my dad. My dad said, don't gamble while you're in there. You know, don't do drugs. Don't get involved in the gangs. You know, watch who you lend something to and watch who you borrow something from. If you do those five things, you will live while you're in prison. And, you know, people in prison get killed. It happens all the time. People get stabbed. They get beat to death. All kinds of really nasty stuff happens in prison. And the majority of the time, it's because they were involved in drugs. They were involved in a gang. They were involved in some kind of thing that was just as dangerous as it is out here. There are levels of danger in prison, you know, and first of all, if you want to keep your mental health right, you know, stay out of all that stuff, you know, then right, start progressing into doing some behaviors that are going to help you going on a walk, you know, finding one or two friends that you can trust, you know, and also be mindful of them as well. You can't really trust anybody in there with your, you know, with what you feel in your heart and you just need to be on, you know a level of intimacy and vulnerability with the people who are around you, but yet guard yourself, you know, cause people will use things against you in those institutions. I mean, even something as simple as being on the phone and you're talking to your, your, your parent, or you're talking to your loved one and you're like, man, I miss you. Or you have a problem with your lady. People will use that. They'll listen to what's going on on the phone and they'll use that against you to manipulate you. So It's an environment where really the struggle of life is very apparent. Yet there are beautiful times in there where people really do connect and you can build friendships and you can trust people. Yet you need to wade into it. You know, you need to wade into it very carefully and be mindful of that. You know, of course, meditation, of course, prayer, of course, physical exercise. And if you're, you know, in a psychotic state where you, you know, somebody's calling you, maybe somebody's listening to this podcast and they're saying they're hearing voices and things like that. They need to go get help. You know, they need to go get on some kind of medicine while they're in there. People do take advantage of mentally ill people in, in prisons, just like they do here on the street. You know, they'll take advantage of people that are having hallucinations, that are having, you know, psychosis episodes. They'll they'll steal from them just like they do here. You know, oftentimes in the institution though, people will protect those people a lot more than they do on the street which is kind of strange to think about but there are a lot of internal kind of things that happen in institutional living that you know you wouldn't think would happen where somebody would say like oh you know I've kind of adopted this person I'm gonna look out for him Um, you know that happens in there it does and relationships are built good friendships are uh, happen and you know people's lives are changed for the better it doesn't happen as much as it should You know, if we had, um, you know, fines in place for every time a jail sent somebody back and they came back, that's the jail's issue. You know, the jail has failed that person. The prison has failed that person. You know, I feel like we should be docking those prisons' money. We should be docking them and we should be coming up with strategies that eliminate the amount of recidivism. Because like for me, if I would have settled with the comfortable feeling that I had in my heart that I experienced when I first went down, that feeling of, wow, I have a place to live. You know, I can read, I can focus on my, you know, working out. If that would have, and that's in the back of my head, you know, probably for about the first five, 10 years, I thought about that from time to time, you know, like how comfortable I felt in there, how I could have done whatever amount of time, you know, does it get lonely? Does it get ugly? Yes, it does. And it actually felt good at some points while I was in there. You know, So I needed to reach out and want more for my life. I wanted to have sovereignty. I wanted to have freedom. I wanted to know a life that I haven't known and that my family hasn't known. And I wanted to be that beacon of hope for my daughter and set an example to my community. And that's what kept me out of those institutions. You know, a more important conversation is what do you do when you get out, you know? And that's, you know, where I really um, I went into volunteering. I started volunteering at the church. I started working with youth. I started talking to the same to in the same neighborhoods that I was using drugs that I was, you know, living that gangster life and doing all the things that I was doing. I went right back to those neighborhoods and started talking about positivity, started talking about spirituality, all of those things. And that's really where we as a community can help the people that are coming out of institutions that have that good health, that have that strength in their body. You know, they're physically fit, put them to work in the community, get them out there doing good stuff and they will not go back. You know, I'm, I'm living example of that. I'm the type of person that's supposed to go back with my parents. That's supposed to have genetic flaws and all this stuff. Nonsense, man. You know, I'm here to live my life and have a good life doing it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I really love your story because I had a father that was um, pretty heavy into cocaine and other drugs. And, uh, you know, he didn't uh, he passed away a couple of years ago at 60. And so, you know, I've always been, you know, I inherited his name as well. You know, Lucky is his was his nickname and he named me him. So um, when people see me, they kind of see a picture of him. But. Um, I've always felt that kind of weight on my shoulders to be something greater, to make sure that I don't end up the same way as he did, that to be better to my kids to be. Um, but with your story, you know, with this kind of, uh, so, uh, you know, quote unquote prophecy that's supposed to happen. Right. Um, I really love these stories when, when destiny isn't always what somebody tells you it is, right. It's really what you make out of it. So I really love your story, Andrew. And, you know, this is usually what I ask everybody, you know, what's your message out there to the people? Maybe somebody may have come from the same, similar background doing drugs, you know, maybe uh, drug dependent parents as well. You know, maybe somebody going through the prison system or that has gone through the prison system. I mean, what's your message out there to people?
1: Well, first of all, I would say that really the conversation for me is about self-identity, emotional intelligence, and relational spirituality. And our ancestors had, you know, so many great systems that can help us today in our contemporary life. You know, the drum, dance, song, you know, these are things that we can really use today in a way that can help us and foster a greater relationship with living life. Also, this powerful form of introduction that I shared at the beginning, you know, to be a child, to be a grandchild, we're taught in our contemporary culture, what are you going to be when you grow up? And for many of us, the pressure of that idea that we're not enough, is a, is a it leads to consequences that are really detrimental. We have yet to really teach our children who they are, you know, and the more that we can fortify the space that they are a child, that they are a grandchild, that they come from some place. Right. This is the wisdom of our ancestors, our Apache ancestors, you know, in day people. The very first thing that was taught to children was how to introduce themselves, how to have a mom and a dad and a grandma and grandpa and to be from a place. You know, this is important. You know, it fortifies this, the idea of self-identity. So if anybody's out there that would like to get a free copy of my book, you can go to the sacred seven get a copy of the book there. Also, if you purchase a signed copy of my book, I send one into the institution, into the prisons. Every copy that I sign with a personalized message to you, it gets sent to you, and then one goes into the Arizona Department of Corrections. If you have a loved one out there that is in prison and you want it sent directly to them, just send me a note and say, hey, you know what, my my homie, my dad, my mom, my grandma, my grandpa, somebody could benefit from this, my husband, wife. Could benefit from your story, brother, sister, cousin, you know, friend, whatever it is, I'll send it to them. I just need to clarify with the prison that they get Amazon. That's one thing that has to happen. And uh, yeah, I'm just out here to try to do my best. Lucky, you know, help as many people as possible. Like, I like to say that I'm a, you know, a rainbow unicorn, man. You don't come across people like me very often that have lived through the shit that I've lived through to be the person that I am today. So, you know, give thanks. I couldn't do it by myself. You know, I have many great mentors and many great people in my life and also my relationship to the creator. You know, I called that I called that relationship Jesus for a lot of years. I call it the Holy Spirit. I call it creator. You know, it doesn't matter to me. You can call it whatever Allah Buddha, you know it's just that relationship, man. That's helped me, you know, having prayer in my life, having meditation, all these good things. So hope that helps somebody.
0: Yeah. And no, I I think it definitely will. And once again, Andrew, I really appreciate you sharing your story on my platform. I really, um, you know, I really appreciate it. I think it's uh, a different perspective coming from, you know, obviously I have, you know, I just mentioned that, you know, my father was drug dependent as well, but um, you know, actually having somebody deal with the loss of their parents, both of their parents to that, because my mother is, is is still very alive and kicking. Um and you know, seeing you come from that environment, seeing what you're doing today, and seeing how you've also um brought that full circle into helping people that are just like you that may um, and maybe that are, aren't just like you, that have dealt with cancer, that have dealt with things that kind of life just gave them. They, you know, it's, it's just something that, wasn't, that couldn't be controlled. And for you to give that control back to them is a very inspiring story. So once again, Andrew, I really appreciate you being on the Mental Health Chats.
1: Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Let me know if I can ever come back on. This has been a lot of fun. And you're a great interviewer. Oh, you know you. you brought out some really good questions. I appreciate that.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for watching Mental Health Casual. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more videos.